So I grew up a rural Nebraska girl, which means a lot of things. Uh, first and foremost, it means I am not proud of my football team yesterday. That was real bad. Don't ask me about it. I'm still a little hurt. Um, but it also means I say things like putting up sweet corn. I not only know what a runza is, but I like them. Some of you know what that means. I had one, more than one friend growing up whose living room boasted Husker red carpet. And I was jealous. All right? That's a true Nebraskan right there. But another thing that I think is true because of my rural, small town growing up is that you could drop me in any corner of my small town and I could find my way home. By five years old, I was walking home from church, which was a number of blocks. Uh, and the reason that was true was because I knew what direction north was, and my whole county was laid out in mile grids. And then my whole small town was laid out in block grids, and the roads ran parallel, and it was easy. Some of you are nodding. You grew up in this place. I never worried about getting lost and was always pretty confident I could find my way home. It's one of the things I actually really loved about Des Moines when I first moved here as an 18-year-old to the big city. I loved that the roads ran parallel. And here I was, an 18-year-old, and I remember the first junior who said to me, oh, it's easy, University, Hickman, Douglas, Meredith Drive. I was like, yes. So, that's a good thing, except it turns out that the whole world is not laid out in neat mile-wide grids because of pesky things like rivers and mountains, you know, the things that they don't have in Nebraska. And here's the reality. It's harder to get your directional bearings when, for example, there's so much smog that you can't see the sun or the buildings are so tall that you can't find the horizon. Sometimes, you get to cities where the streets are narrow and crowded and chaotic and the streets are curved. Who does this? And here's the reality. I know that I can just pull up my Google Maps or my Apple Maps and follow the prompts. But one of the things I realized several years ago is that I'm kind of old school. Or maybe I'm a control freak. It's probably both. But I have a hard time trusting the voice on my phone if I don't have some sense of my bearings of where I am. And that was only confirmed one night this summer in the middle of Paris when we couldn't get cell coverage and my map wouldn't load and I didn't speak the language and I wasn't sure where we were. And I thought, see, this isn't... So I realized if I wanted to keep traveling, I had to learn a tip or a trick. So now, anytime I go to a new place, I find my location on a map. Now, sometimes I use my phone, sometimes I pull, even better is an old school map. Okay, some of you are nodding, you're like, yes, I get you. Uh, so I pull out my map, and then I find a landmark. A tall, visible place that I can sort of use to get my bearings. 
And then I look and I figure out where I'm going. And now I can track my progress by keeping my eyes on that landmark, no matter how chaotic or convoluted the streets. For example, when we were in Paris, my landmark was, guess, you probably know it, even if you haven't been there, was the Eiffel Tower, exactly. And so that night, when we were discombobulated, I literally just got to a clear place so I could find the Eiffel Tower. And then I thought, okay, I can get us moving in the right direction, at least. Now, I don't know about you, but I am finding that it's not always easy to get my bearings these days. I mean, not literally. I know my way around Des Moines, like the back of my hand now. Maybe more emotionally, and even perhaps sometimes spiritually. I mean, it seems like we're back to normal, but then we're not. Relationships have changed, jobs have changed, how we do our jobs has changed. We're edgier, we're anxious, the world feels more complex than ever. And I can tell I'm getting older because some part of me thinks, can't we go back to a world where all the streets ran parallel and it was easy to find my way home? Now, of course, Paul, the writer of the book of Philippians, would be quick to tell us that there have always been times when it was hard to get your bearings. He knew it firsthand. He writes this book, which was really originally a letter, from a prison, waiting to be sentenced and maybe to death. And he wasn't even in prison justly, he'd been unjustly accused. Because of that, he'd lost his livelihood, he was out of work and dependent on the kindness of others. And in the meantime, his character was being slandered and all kinds of people were jockeying to move in on his territory. Paul understood what it meant to be in a place where things were unfamiliar. And what's more, he was sending this letter to people who were experiencing their own disorientation. For example, in the city of Philippi, the state, the Roman state, was insistent that the hope of people was in political power. And they were constantly pressured to declare that Caesar was God. And then the culture around them was telling them day in and day out, if it feels good, it is good. Put yourself, your desires, and your comfort first. In, in all of that, those, of the, those people who were trying to follow Jesus as a community of faith were experiencing anxiety and suffering. And following Jesus was not making that better, it was making it worse. What does Paul do? He writes a letter to those people, and I think by proxy to us, that is full of affection and encouragement and peace and joy. And at the center of that letter, he puts a landmark, one that is visible and beautiful. And then he urges them and us to navigate around that landmark to orient their entire life around it. 
It's one of the things that makes the book of Philippians unique. See, the book of Romans, for example, another book that Paul wrote, is very logical. It's very sequential. It is laid out with grids that are clear. It's very hard to lose your way in Romans. But the book of Philippians, well, Paul builds the whole letter around this beautiful poem in chapter 2, which is a condensed version of the gospel story. And in doing that, he's offering us a picture of what it looks like to build our life around that same gospel reality. He's inviting us to find a landmark that can reliably lead us home when we feel lost and disoriented. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Now, if you got a bookmark, it's on the front of your bookmark. This is why we're not beginning with verse 1, chapter 1. We're starting in the middle of chapter 2. And I would encourage you to follow along on your bookmark or, or here. Uh, Jean, we are going to start at verse 5 instead of verse 1. So that is entirely my fault. So thank you, Jean, for your flexibility. All right. It begins, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God's something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I want you to notice that this passage begins with Jesus being held up as our example. And initially, this seems like a great thing, because we learn right off the bat that Jesus existed before human time in a state of glory equal to God. Orient my life around immortality, glory, honor, and equality with God? Yes, please, sign me up. And I actually think Humanity at large loves to be signed up for that equation. But this is only where the story starts. Jesus, because he is God, okay? Let me say that again. Because he is God, makes a mind-bending choice. He doesn't use his power to keep himself safe or to gain an advantage like I would. He empties himself on purpose to become human. He restrained his power, restricted his location, and embraced the limits of a human body. He traded majesty for indigestion. 
glory for backaches, serenity for sleepless nights, and the intimacy of the Trinity for the betrayal of friends. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if you want to get the hang of the incarnation, just imagine how you'd feel if you woke up one morning and discovered you were a garden slug. That's what it was like. Now, it wasn't even the king of the garden slugs, by the way. No, Jesus didn't come as a human in a palace with power and riches. No, Jesus chose to become a slave, a human who was labeled a criminal unfairly and then died the most humiliating and torturous death imaginable. Now, if you are like me, you're beginning to ask why, why, why in the world would any being sacrifice that much? And Paul tells us it's because that is God's nature. The pre-existent Christ was not a grasping, selfish, narcissistic being, but one whose love for others found its natural expression in pouring out in taking up the role of a slave, in humbling himself to the point of death for me, for you. You know, one thing I noticed in Paris, the people who live there rarely notice the Eiffel Tower. I talked, in fact, with one Parisian who confessed, I never go there unless guests make me. As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And if not contempt, at least complacency. And I think this morning, as we look at this landmark, it's easy to take it for granted, to not really see it. I think we need help being reminded of the beauty of the landmarks around us. And so I wanted to share with you a story that helped me remember what this kind of love looks like by an author by the name of Bob Goff. See, when Bob was in high school, he didn't know very much about Jesus. But he knew a guy named Randy. Randy worked for Youth for Christ, and he befriended Bob. And because he had a beard and a motorcycle and a girlfriend, Bob was like, okay, you're cool enough. I'll hang out. And so they began a friendship. Now, Bob was bored with school and a terrible student, and he heard that you could take a test and get a diploma. And so he decided at the beginning of his junior year that he was going to drop out, head to Yosemite, and climb mountains. And of course, he'd get a job, and it would be wonderful. So that Sunday morning early, he packed up his car, put $75 in his pocket, and as he says in his own words, more out of courtesy than anything, he stopped by Randy's house to say goodbye. Now, Randy answered the door groggy and bedheaded and patiently tried to figure out what this student was saying to him early in the morning. And then he asked Bob to wait a second could I go inside and check something, he said. Now, 
I want to quote Bob about what happened next. When Randy came to the door, he had a tattered backpack hanging over his shoulder by one frayed strap and a sleeping bag under his arm. He was focused and direct, and all he said was, Bob, I'm with you. Something about his words rang right through me. He didn't lecture me about how I was blowing it. He didn't tell me what a fool I was. He didn't tell me I would surely crater. He was resolute, unequivocal, had no agenda. I'm with you, Bob. After a little hemming and hawing, Bob decided to let Randy come on the condition that he would just stay until he got settled in, and then Randy would find his way back. The two drove to Yosemite and slept in Bob's car, and for three days, Bob looked for a job, only, you know, there's not a lot of demand for 16-year-olds. Slowly, he began to realize some of the cracks in his plan, but Randy was encouraging and positive and said several times, either way, Bob, I'm with you. By the end of day four, with only a few dollars left and reality sinking in, Bob told Randy he was thinking about going back to finish high school. After a short pause, Randy said again, man, whatever you decide, just know, I'm with you. The next day, they got in the car and made their way home. Now, I want to read to you what happens next, straight out of Bob's book, which is Love Does. It's a wonderful book. We pulled down some familiar streets and into, Bob, into Randy's driveway. There was another car in the drive next to Randy's that looked like his girlfriend's. She visited often, so I didn't think a lot about it. We walked up to the front door and he opened it. I walked in beside Randy, uninvited, but still somehow feeling welcome. On the floor, I noticed a stack of plates and some wrapping paper, a coffee maker, some glasses. On the couch, there was a microwave, half in the box. I didn't understand at first. Had Randy just had a birthday? Was it his girlfriend's birthday? A microwave seems like a weird way to celebrate someone's arrival into the world. I knew Randy wasn't moving because there wouldn't be wrapping paper. And then from around the corner, the other half of this couple bounded out and threw her arms around Randy. Welcome home, honey. And then the nickel dropped. I felt both sick and choked up in an instant. I realized that these were wedding presents on the floor. Randy and his girlfriend had just gotten married. And when I knocked on Randy's door on that Sunday morning, Randy didn't see a high school kid who had disrupted the beginning of his marriage. He saw a kid who was about to jump the tracks. And instead of spending the early days of his marriage with his bride, he spent it with me, sleeping in a car. That's the kind of love that looks like Jesus. That's the kind of love worth imitating. The kind of love worth orienting our lives around. In fact, the last two verses of today's passage tell us that God has made that kind of sacrificial, humble love the landmark for all of history. 
the center of honor for the heavens and the earth. And it's the kind of love that helps us find our bearings, no matter how difficult the world around us becomes. Because God is with us. So that's why we're going to spend the next 10 weeks revolving around this passage using the book of Philippians. It's why every Sunday for the next 10 weeks, we're going to take communion together to center ourselves physically even around that landmark of Jesus Christ's love, death, and resurrection. It's also why I'm going to encourage you to memorize these verses so that you can begin grounding them in your life as a landmark. Because the love who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing. And that love took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that kind of love will always lead us home. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you. When we were lost and broken, dead in our sin, thank you that you emptied yourself and pursued us and refused to let us die alone, but instead proclaimed that you were with us and you are for us. And if we will but look for you and orient our lives around you, you will always lead us home. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of love. And all God's people said, amen.